Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone of the Department of History at Augustana College. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello. The year 1453 marked the end of an intermittent yet seemingly endless series of wars between the kingdoms of France and England that, about 400 years later, was dubbed the Hundred Years' War. And depending on how you count, even the most conservative estimate of its beginnings would make it longer than that. This internecine conflict led to numerous changes in the life of not only kings, but in those of men and women of all sorts, of warriors, priests, and peasants, landowners, great and small, ladies, nuns, and housewives, and prisoners of war, and the poor in their infinite variety in both kingdoms. With me to explain the effects and influences of the Hundred Years' War is David Green, author of The Hundred Years' War, A People's History, published by Yale University Press. A senior lecturer in British Studies and History at Harlaxton College, he has published several earlier studies on other aspects of the Hundred Years' War. David, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. Hello. Um, first of all, please explain your, your interesting title. Um, what is your book and what is it not? Well, it's it's an attempt to look at the human cost of the Hundred Years' War in a rather different way than has previously been explored. Um, it looks at the way that the war brought about changes to various different social groups. It looks at the way in which the war as well seeks to or brought together particular groups on account of the conflict. It's something... It, it, it's a, it's an awkward title in many ways. Um, it's a title which I, I struggled with, but was also intrigued by. Um, I was definitely not trying to write some sort of Zinnish right. uh, narrative. But at the same time, I did want to look at the impact of the war on the individuals, as I say, in a rather different way than I had done, than had been done previously. I wanted to look at this extraordinarily extended conflict um, some people were drawn together into groups on account of the impact of war. Some were changed fundamentally, it seemed to me, on account of the conflict. Um, and it, it's it's not a narrative history, but it seeks to explore how the Hundred Years' War brought about some fundamental changes on different social groups. So I look at the impact on major political figures on kings and queens, um, but also trying to look at the impact on, on ordinary people, on the soldiery that is involved in the war and that perpetrates so much of the violence, on the peasantry that suffered so much and is brutalised by the conflict, mm -hmm. on women, um, both of aristocratic and peasant status. Um, and as I say, on, on particular groups that are drawn together by the war, so people like prisoners of war, mm -hmm. and those groups who um, sought to bring an end to the war. There are periods in which there's very much um, an anti-war mentality that develops, and some of those people have clear associations as well. Mm -hmm. um, the title as well, frankly, was one which was suggested by my publishers because it was a book which is aimed at a general reader, frankly, as well as members of the academy. Um, and it was a way, frankly, just to try and um, 
and interest well, some of those it, people as well. Yeah, it sounds and it sounds about better than a, the Hundred Years' War social history, which is always um, probably only historians like to read those. Um, yeah, I suppose so. Yeah, I'm afraid. I mean, even after all these years, I'm afraid that's the case. Um, nonetheless, this is uh, well, this actually is an international audience listening, but nevertheless, we require, despite this not being a narrative, we're going to require a brisk uh, overview of the Hundred Years' War. Um, we do have a terminus, 1453, uh, sure. that involves the last British, I, mean, I should say English ship leaving Bordeaux, correct? Um, yeah, And But when does it begin? I mean, there are a variety of dates to choose from. I mean, we yeah, can, this we is can, a very we, good question. We can even it, try 1066, I suppose. Yeah, really... it, I mean, it throws into question, frankly, the whole concept of a hundred years war. Right, exactly. Um, this is about Anglo-French relations, which in some ways, as you say, go all the way back to 1066. And although 1453 does mark a terminus, I think, clearly England and France aren't at any sort of peaceful resolution for a very, very, very long time yeah, you, you, after that. You quote so, uh, Charles de Gaulle um, saying in 1963, this is very relevant to recent events, that uh, England has been a, our real eternal enemy. And he, all the way to Fashoda in the in the 1890s, uh, the sure. Fashoda crisis. So. Yeah, given what's happened in the last couple of weeks over here, it, yeah. it is clear that our relationship with Europe is still not entirely friendly. No. Um, but yeah, I mean, we could go back to 1066. The, the situation in 1066, um, of course, changes markedly. At that point, the Duke of Normandy also becomes the King of England. And as such, he is a vassal of the King of France. And that sets up, potentially anyway, uh, an untenable political relationship. Of course, that situation becomes even more problematic um, in the 12th century with the development of the Angevin Empire. Mm -hmm. And for a period under Henry II and his sons, kings of England are in direct control of more of France than the Capetian kings of France. Mm -hmm. Of course, this is also problematic. However, Capetian authority slowly develops over the course of the 12th century. The Angevins are slowly pushed back. In 1204, they lose Normandy, which, of course, was the, the heartland of the English monarchy, going back to 1066. We could look forward to a date like uh, 1259 as being very significant. At that point, King Henry III of England signs a treaty with Louis IX of France, and this acknowledges the King of France overlordship. At the same time, though... Um, Henry III is acknowledged as being Duke of Gascony. And Gascony will be at the heart of the issues that lead to the outbreak of the Hundred Years' War. And it's why, in many ways, 1453 is a really good terminus for these series of conflicts, which we've chosen to call the Hundred Years' War. Um, the Treaty of Paris in 1259 doesn't lead immediately to peace, or rather there are periods of peace, but um, it doesn't secure a long-term peace. Um, there are a series of small wars in the 1290s and again in the 1320s. Um, what really, though, does change the dynamic is the death of the last Capetian king, Charles IV, uh, in 1328. And at that point, the then King of England, the young Edward III, has a claim to the French throne through his mother, Isabella. Um, and that causes hostilities to, to change in, in intensity. 
Um, there are other issues as well. One of the reasons that the Hundred Years' War goes on for so long is that it starts to bring in issues concerning Scotland, concerning the papacy, concerning various other European powers as well. Those start to come together in the early 1330s. And finally, in 1337, um, the then King of France, um, Philip VI, he's the first of the Valois dynasty, um, seizes the English Duchy of Gascony. He declares Edward III to be a recalcitrant vassal. He has failed in his duties by taking in um, a renegade French nobleman called Robert of Artois, and the Hundred Years' War starts. Mm-hmm. Um, do you want to take me, shall I take you through... Yeah, let's go. Let's go through the first period of, say, Edward the, the I guess, the period of the two Edwards. Uh, sure. Of uh, the Edward the Third and his son, the Edward the Black Prince, who never actually yeah. becomes king, uh, and also and and characterize that sort of warfare of that time. Okay. Yeah, the very first phase uh, of the Hundred Years' War, from an English perspective, is bound up with a, an attempt to build a series of grand alliances with other European powers against France. It's a relatively short period um, and it gains very little. It's extremely expensive. Uh, And from 1340 onwards, there is a a change in the direction of English strategy and English policy. And it centers on a series of great raids. They're called chevauchets. And it's basically socio-economic warfare writ large. It's an attempt to devastate the French countryside. It's uh, what Southerners believe Sherman did to them. But uh, this is a lot closer to the, the mythology of, of, say, Sherman in the uh, Civil War than yeah, in I reality. Suppose, yeah, I suppose so. Um, you know, it, it's very clearly a deliberate attempt to undermine both the economic base of the Valois monarchy, but also undermine their political credibility. Yeah, um, because so, they're they're unable to defend their nobles and their and their people. Precisely. You know, the first duty of a monarch is to protect his people and to protect the homeland. And if they can't do that, then there is an implicit criticism of their rule. Um, and it's seeking to undermine the uh, rather the Valois monarchy in a very real sense. There are a number of small scale ones of these, but the first one, which is really deeply significant, is a campaign launched in 1346. And it leads to eventually uh, a battle at Cressy, um, which the English are victorious at. Um, This is significant because Edward III himself is in the field. So is his son, uh, Edward the Black Prince. And they defeat a French, French army, which is led by Philip VI. So it, it's a very, again, it's a very direct um, comment, if you like, um, on the Valois monarchy. Um, it's it's important for another number of reasons concerning military strategy as well. Um, it shows the effectiveness of a relatively new um, military approach, which combines English infantry with longbowmen. And it proves to be very effective against what's primarily a French cavalry army. So this is the first of these great English it's, victories of Cressy, of Poitiers, and then eventually Agincourt. Yeah, absolutely. And all of those, um, all of those victories use the same basic tactical approach. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it is significant because it, it's it's 
it's making a comment as well, or it shows that cavalry is no longer the military weapon that it used to be. Disciplined infantry combined with longbowmen proves to be very effective against cavalry. And then a few years later, on during another chevauchet, um, there's another battle, and the King of France is actually captured. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in many ways, the most devastating chevauchet of the Hundred Years' War is that launched by the Black Prince in 1355. He rides from Bordeaux on the Atlantic coast of France to uh, Narbonne on the Mediterranean coast and back again, causes extraordinary devastation. He's said to have attacked 500 towns, villages, settlements of various sorts. Doesn't fight a battle just causing widespread devastation. Mm -hmm. In the following year, he capitalizes on this and rides north, and rides, if you like, into the Valois heartlands. And the King of France, by now Jean II, is unable to ignore this sort of challenge. And so they meet in battle at Poitiers in 1356, and, as you say, Jean II is defeated and captured. And in many ways, John's capture is more significant than, politically significant than his death would have been. Because this changes the political dynamic. It gives the English a huge amount of um, political bargaining power. Um, that will eventually lead to a treaty um, after another series of smaller engagements. It will lead to a treaty signed in 1360, the so-called Treaty of Bretigny. Um, which gives the English very considerable territorial holdings in France and also um, a major ransom. So they're a major financial... And, and just effort. at this moment of triumph, uh, defeat is snatched from the jaws of victory. Uh, it, it, well, it, seem, it seems. I mean, well, at least the French begin to respond. Yeah. They, they adapt their strategy to this new... The, the, the English strategy. They adapt tactics. To, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in some ways... It's very difficult using this strategy to make really substantial political gains. The English end up controlling about a third of France, but frankly, they're not able to defend that area. Mm -hmm. um, and after a number of years, um, between 1360 and 1369, there is this major territorial holding in France, but eventually there is a rebellion against English rule um, and the French, new French monarch Charles V who is extraordinarily capable. He is a political operator on a completely different level from his predecessor. Um, he's able to take advantage of this and we see the French rolling back those territorial gains really very quickly. By about 1372 pretty much everything that has been gained in these sort of glory years of Cressy and Poitiers has been lost. The only thing that's left is um, Calais, um, which they gained in 1347, which gives them a, a useful hold um, or a sort of embarkation point in northern France. But nonetheless, we see a major, major change. Is it fair to see then there's, a, um, there's a, about 30 to 40 years now of relative peace or basically trying to recover from the damages um, made upon themselves in the previous war? Uh, Between wars. about, well, I suppose so. But um, 
I, th I think it's also a mistake to see this as a complete period of peace. No. To some extent, the the English now start to have to deal with the consequences of their actions in the first part of the war. The French launch a number of raids on the south coast of England. There are real fears of a French invasion. There are major invasion forces which are put together in the 1380s and 1390s. Um, what goes wrong for the French, of course, is Charles V dies fairly young in 1380, and his successor, Charles VI, is a minor. Um, and later, from the early 1390s, he, um, he suffers a period um, of really intense mental collapse. And the madness of Charles VI really does scar any opportunity for a French, major French recovery. Essentially, it will lead to a civil war in France, mm -hmm. which then opens up the opportunity for the English to involve themselves in French affairs again under the Lancastrians, under Henry V in particular. So Henry V invades, and over a period of five years, uh, he basically, by 1420, if I got my dates right, uh, he's able to establish a dual monarchy. Is that yeah, more? that's right. Um, Agincourt's important, um, of course. It, it's a major victory, and it's very important symbolically to show that the English can still win. It's also important for Henry V as part of the Lancastrian dynasty, which has come to power um, 16 years previously, to show that it's sort of a legitimate force. Agincourt doesn't of itself, again, lead to massive political gains. But what Henry is able to do um, in subsequent campaigns is regain Normandy, which again is hugely important if you think back to um, the origins of the English monarchy and the associations with 1066. The old duchy, if you like, is back in English hands. And then subsequently, because of this civil war in France, he makes an alliance with the Burgundians, one of the most powerful of the French noble houses. And this leads to, as you say, um, what becomes a dual monarchy. They sign a treaty in 1420, the Treaty of Troyes, and it means that Charles VI, the mad king of France, is going to be king for the remainder of his days, but his successor will be Henry V. Or his issue, um, and which is si significant because Henry the Sixth, the Fifth, then uh, ruins everything by dying. Uh, what what's that? Fourteen twenty-two, or, is it, or there yeah, right? absolutely. Um, and his um, his father-in-law, because Henry the Fifth marries Catherine of Valois, daughter of um, Charles the Sixth. Charles the Sixth dies um, about two months after. Henry. Leaving, uh, we all know this from Shakespeare, um, uh, although he's a very unreliable historian, I just want to warn the audience, um, that, that uh, great playwright, but lousy historian, uh, sure. the, uh, that he leaves a minor, Henry VI, as king of England and France. Yeah, absolutely. And then, um, and then out of nowhere comes Joan of Arc. Yeah, um, Henry VI, frankly, we can't hold him responsible for what happens in the 20s. He was two years old. 20s. You know? yeah. He's, yeah, he's nine months old when he comes to the throne. Um, and his lieutenants are really very capable um, for a while. Um, <laughs> and they start to push back the borders um, of English-controlled France. Um, and eventually they get to the River Loire and to the town of Orléans, which is under siege in 1428. And at that point, there is this remarkable intervention by a peasant girl um, 
called Joan of Arc, who has managed to convince um, the Dauphin, um, the future Charles VII of France, that she has been sent by God in order to lead a an attack um, on the English. It's, it's couched very much in the language of the Crusades. It's seen very much as something about French destiny and that a maid, a virgin, will be responsible for leading this resurgence. And she changes the political dynamic again. Joan is hugely significant, but frankly, what is more significant is the collapse of the Anglo-Burgundian alliance, and that finally collapses in 1435. Mm -hmm. So the combination of Joan's intervention, the collapse of the Anglo-Burgundian alliance, sees English control in France, first of all, very much shaken and then eventually broken in a series of campaigns which sees the loss of Normandy by about 1450 and then the loss of Gascony in 1453. Which we, I mean, we should emphasize that Gascony had been uh, English since Eleanor of Aquitaine married Henry II. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, it goes all the way back to 1152. So this is not exactly, it's not as if there's a, we, we should think of this, it, it, the we have to avoid the nationalist categories uh, which in which we come naturally to us now partly because of the Hundred Years' War when we think about this world prior to 1453. Um, yeah. So that's great. That, that takes us through to the end. Um, let's go back now and look at what happened to people in this great conflict. Oh, we should add, first of all, this is going on at the same time uh, with the Black Death, um, which is... It's as it's as present as the warfare, um, sure. and uh, it is have killing off even more of the population um, than the war itself. Um, medieval people and medieval historians since often speak of the three orders: the the fighters, the workers, and the prayers. Um, let's talk about the prayers first: um, monks and nuns and friars and priests and bishops and popes. Um, what's the effect of the Hundred Years' War upon them? I think it's difficult, and you've, you've mentioned the Black Death, to disentangle the impact of plague and war, particularly when it comes to the clergy, to those who pray. This is an extraordinarily, well, appalling, but also very difficult time for the clergy. The clergy in both countries are essentially blamed for the Black Death. The Black Death is seen very much as um, divine wrath on a sinful people. So why has the church not done something about this? And why hasn't it warned people about it? So this is a period of very considerable anti-clericalism in both countries. This is a period of, and England becomes the period of John Wycliffe. Uh, Absolutely. We've uh, Langland's Pierce Plowman and really uh, brilliant uh, vernacular critiques of the, of the existing churchly order. Very much so. Yeah. Um, and that, to some extent as well, is exacerbated by the fact that the papacy is going through a very difficult time. The papacy had been forced out in the first decade of the 14th century, forced out of Rome, and relocated in Avignon, which in theory is an independent area on the edge of France, but in reality is very much under French influence. And so the papacy is seen as being very much in the pocket of the French monarchy. It's one of the reasons it's very difficult to find a resolution to the Hundred Years' War, because um, the papacy would have been uh, a sort of mediator. 
but the English on the whole do not trust the papacy for this period of time. Especially when it's French cardinals that end up becoming Pope, oddly enough. Oddly, <laughs> enough, gets, oddly enough. Yeah, it, it gets even more difficult um, in the 1370s with the outbreak of what becomes known as the Great Schism. Yeah. And you have a split in the papacy and you've got two men, a 1.3 men, all claiming to be Pope. Yeah. The French are supporting one bloke, the English are supporting another. Um, so it means that the church in many ways is becoming politicized in a wholly new way. And that also has implications for clergymen lower, lower down the scale. It means to a certain extent that the clergy are fair game in these chevaches in perhaps a way that they wouldn't have been previously. They are targets for attack in different in a different sort of way than they would have been previously, because the clergy get co-opted into the political efforts of both sides. The clergy are involved as propagandists for both sides as well. Um, sermons, church processions, all those sorts of things are used by kings in both countries in order to justify what they're doing politically. And, and so, and interestingly enough, it seems to be the clerical disturbers, the disturbers of clerical order, who are the those who most want peace, people like Langland and Wycliffe and, and others. Yeah, yeah that's, that's very true. Um, I mean, I think there are some more, uh, if you like, mainstream figures who are doing this as well, um, people like John Gower in particular. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um, describe, but yeah, describe, clearly has. Describe so, Gower briefly. He's a, he's a... Gower writes um, a number of works. His opinion about war changes. He starts off being wary of violence um, between Christians. Um, he, he's sort of in favour of crusading activities early on. By the time he comes to write uh, what some of his later works, like Vox Clementis, Gower is really, really condemnatory of the whole military effort. And you can see a, a transition in his in his thought as he's becoming increasingly disillusioned um, with the war. And what he sees as the motivation for people fighting. It's very much seen as something which is being fought for financial gain rather than for any sort of greater purpose or indeed national purpose. So Gower's important in that. You can see perhaps some similar things in Chaucer as well, not as explicit, but there are, as you say, a number of authors and important um, authors who write about this. And in France... Attitudes in France are perhaps slightly different. Right, but... right. But we have people like Honor Bonnet and then also even more... Um... Uh, notable Christine de Pizan and um, Jean, Jean Gerson, but you, as you point out, their their calls for peace are always a bit much more conditional. Yes, absolutely. Um, the war, of course, primarily is being fought on French soil, and there are very good reasons that French people want to continue fighting in order to stop the fighting long term. They want to kick the English out. It makes perfect sense. They will only achieve peace through continuing to fight. Whereas for the English, there is, you know, theoretically, we can stop this simply by stopping fighting. Let's talk about peasants. Um, the uh, chevauchee obviously is uh, aimed 
aimed really at them. I mean, they are the primary um, sufferers under the under that sort of rating tact uh, that rating strategy, um, and they're exposed also to all sorts of horrible things, including rape as a weapon. Um, and there are, in, in response to this, there are tremendous, eventually, peasant revolts in both France and England. Explain a little bit of that to us, if you would. Yeah, I think it's it's very difficult in the context of the Hundred Years' War to decide who a non-combatant is. One thing about that changes about the way in which the war is being fought is it, it starts to be fought on a much more professional basis. And in order to maintain that there are higher levels of taxation. And so in order to maintain the war, you need to maintain levels of taxation. And if you want to disturb the income of the enemy, one way of doing that is simply by attacking the peasantry that pay the majority of the taxes. At the same time, and I think we may come on to this later, there is an increasing awareness of, if not national identity, then some sort of sense of national consciousness during the war. And as people are sort of buying into that as well, it makes the enemy seem much more of an obvious target regardless of status. And so the peasantry, both men and women, are subject to direct and deliberate attacks. I mean, of course, this is always happening, but it does seem to be in a more focused and deliberate way. They're very, very conscious the English, of how much damage they're doing, even to the extent of going into tax collectors' properties in various towns and finding out precisely how much revenue those areas generate for the French monarchy. So they're trying to calculate precisely the level of devastation they're causing. And in that context, of course, it is really, really difficult to determine who is a non-combatant. Everyone is involved in the war effort, and so to some extent, everyone is considered fair game. I think the position of women is is obviously is particularly brutal and vile. Um, yeah. We can't see anything which talks about rape being excused, but there are attitudes to the time which see rape almost as a property crime. Yeah. It's an attack to some extent on the father or on the husband or on the significant male in a woman's life rather than on the person of the woman being attacked. And in that context, as abhorrent as it is, you can understand why attacks on women of that sort might be seen as part of a general attack on the French populace. Mm -hmm. It does happen the other way as well. We, we have examples of, of women in England being attacked in this way. But um, clearly, it's the French peasantry that suffer most. Mm -hmm. The... Um there are several risings of the French peasants, the Jacquerie. Um What are they and how have they been interpreted over the centuries? Yeah, the Jacquerie breaks out in uh, 1358. It is to some extent a response to the French defeat at Poitiers two years earlier. Both a response to it and a comment, you know, an attack on, um, on the French aristocracy saying that the French aristocracy have failed in their duties to protect the nation and protect the people, and then the Jacquerie are going to take revenge on them for that. It's also, though, to do with um, a political vacuum that develops after the capture of Jean II 
at Poitiers. So that there are a number of factors that go together here. It is described by contemporary chroniclers as extraordinarily brutal. And it's difficult to know with this how far we should take those accounts at face value. You know, accounts of um, knights being roasted on spits and then their loved ones being forced to eat them and this sort of thing. You know, they're, they're dis- the French peasantry are described as being absolutely brutal and animalistic. Mm-hmm. But the vast majority of ca- accounts that we have of peasant risings, both in France and in England, are written by people who are fundamentally opposed to the objectives of the peasants. And it's being written primarily for, um, they're writing primarily for aristocratic audiences. Mm -hmm. So it's difficult to know how far this is an exaggeration. But I don't think there's any doubt that these things were seen as as a fundamental threat to the established social order. And I think one of the things that the Hundred Years' War does is blur some of the distinctions between the three orders, particularly between the aristocracy, traditionally those who fight, and the peasantry, those who work. You've got all sorts of interesting dynamics which are going on. And the peasant revolts are in some way calling into question the traditional relationship between those two groups. You, you make the point that, uh, well, certainly the French peasants seem to be becoming more, as it were, politically aware, to use a very modern term that they wouldn't recognize. Um, is that right? And Yeah, I think and, that's absolutely right. And, the, and we can see the same thing happening on the other side of the channel, uh, even though uh, England, well, English coasts do suffer maritime chevauchets of a sort, um, but certainly inland England doesn't, and it's, um, it's those people that revolt against taxation that's funding the war, correct? Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Um, in a sense, what happens with this process of almost semi-permanent taxation, you've made the war almost a national effort. The peasantry have been told that they should invest in this. Uh And when the war starts to go wrong, as it goes badly wrong for the English after 1369, and taxation levels increase, and they're not seeing any sort of success uh, in those military endeavours, they start to call into question the ways in which their taxes are being used. Levels of taxation are extremely high. There are three poll taxes that are instituted between 1379 and 1381. And the level goes up each time. The tax collectors are less than gentle in carrying out their duties. And what we see in 1381 is a mass mobilisation of the peasantry in the counties around London. Mm -hmm. It's not a nationwide revolt. It's focused primarily on areas close to the capital. Why do you think that is? I think it's partly what you're talking about in terms of political awareness. Those around London are better informed as to what's going on. They know who to blame. When the peasants finally get to London in 1381, they know, you know, they've got almost a hit list. Mm -hmm. They know very precisely who they want to attack. Yeah. Well, it's it's a lot of these are the risings in France, too. I mean, actually, peasant risings all the way to the French Revolution. It's always fascinating. Um, you know this from, from work in literacy by, say, uh, Brian Stock and, and Michael Clanchy, uh, how uh, illiterate peasants are always able to find exactly the right document that is uh, to burn. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, one thing that absolutely characterizes the attacks on London in 1381 um, is is they go into the lawyers' houses and they destroy all the documents. Yeah. Um, 
So yeah. Relating to land tenure or <laughs> Yeah. Sure. So um so that's the Peasant Rebellion in England. Um what do do should we see um that there's sort of that that these re peasant rebellions are happening for the same reason? Should we make a connection between the two or is that been done too often? Well, I think if you want to see these in terms of sort of long-term causes and short-term motivations, the short-term motivations for the rebellions in England and France are different. The long-term pressures are probably similar. Mm -hmm. Some of them are to do with changing social and economic circumstances after the plague. Some are to do with the broader pressures of warfare. So I think there is a change, the, the changing nature of the peasantry in both countries. You know, is, there, there are similar forces which are at work, which cause general peasant resentment. But the specific causes which bring about rebellion are rather different. Mm -hmm. Let's go back to uh, women. We touched on that with the question of rape. Um, the Black Death is often seen as leading to a golden age for women in the later Middle Ages. Uh, simply the depopulation of Europe means that, as it were, all hands must be on deck. And um, what? How, how would we describe how would you describe this golden age of women and, and do you think that is that that stands up in your analysis of women's behavior uh, women's roles in say the latter in the uh, post 1360 um, hundred years war yeah I mean I the inevitable answer to this is yes and no yeah well I, I thought that you might say that yeah. uh, um, it's yes in the sense that as you say mass depopulation leads to the fact that women's labor is worth more yeah. women have opportunities to get into different sorts of employment they can take on jobs they probably have more influence over um when they can get married indeed if they get married um mm -hmm. so they've got more autonomy both socially and economically whether that is any compensation for those women who you know have survived the loss of between a third and a half of everyone that they care about right <laughs> it is another issue entirely yeah. um, and of course you can exaggerate this but i don't think there's any doubt that certain women are able to take advantage of the new conditions that the plague has created um, that are able to carve out a sort of new niche for themselves in a way that they wouldn't have been able to previously. Of course, this is not something that lasts. Um, when social and economic conditions start to return to something closer to normal from the 1450s onwards, then the new opportunities which have emerged for women start to be reduced. But, I mean, we can find lots of examples of women who you know, do do very well. You mentioned Christine de Pisa. Mm -hmm. She is basically the first woman who's able to um, make a living for herself as a writer. And she is clearly being taken very seriously. You know, there's no no question that she is being patronized or, or being dealt with in any sort of different way, frankly, than a male author. On the other side, there is, there is basic misogyny throughout medieval society. Um, which makes it very difficult for women. So again, there are sort of there are swings and roundabouts. We've got examples like um, Chaucer's Wife of Bath, mm -hmm. caricature, but based on on some sort of reality. A woman who is independently wealthy, who is able to travel extensively within England and overseas, 
go on pilgrimages and that sort of thing. We've got people like Marjorie Kemp later in the 15th century, who goes on extraordinary travels to the Holy Land and so on. So, again, you've got this sort of awkward situation that it's it's really difficult to pin down. It's difficult to generalise with mm-hmm. this. Uh, if you are a French peasant woman who has been subjected to raiding or periods of occupation by English or mercenary forces, who's subject to very high levels of taxation. Now, the Hundred Years' War is a horrible time. Yeah. Um, there are other women who are perhaps able to take advantages advantage of, of some of the circumstances that it creates. Yeah, it, it, so the stories, I mean, the, the stories of women defending their homes, um, mm. uh, that's not actually a good thing that you have to defend your home against <laughs> a rest. So it's, it might be a, a, a sort of symbolic of women's liberation and, uh, and agency, but it's also, it's a bad circumstance to be in. Oh, sure. Yeah, there's, there's nothing good about that. No, no. Uh, so, yeah, and and so the, and there are a number of these stories that become... Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, aristocratic women are, in some cases, responsible, of course, for defending the household sure. um, if, when their husbands are away. Um, and women of lesser status will be actively involved in the defense of cities and villages, um, either throwing things from the walls or bringing water to put out fires or just bringing food and drink to people who are on the walls. Mm -hmm. Again, it shows the way in which it's very difficult to define a non-combatant. Yeah. You know, and so everyone then is again subject perhaps to attack because they're they're all involved in it. It, It's, yeah, it's, it's very problematic. We, um, we're running, we're, we're getting towards the end of our time. So, and we haven't discussed kings. I've studiously avoided speaking about monarchs. Uh, um, the monarchs are discussed in the people's history. Um, I've also, we haven't talked about soldiers or prisoners of war. So there's plenty of stuff left in the book to read. Um, I want to, in our remaining time, discuss uh, what you conclude the book with is the, is, and we've touched on this a, a little, the massive change, I think, to national identity. Um, what did it mean to be French? What did it mean to be English at the beginning of, this, of the Hundred Years' War? And what did it mean to be French and to be English at the end of the Hundred Years' War? These are really key questions. Um, how did French think of themselves at the beginning of the war, and how did that change? It's a very good question, and... I'm tempted to hedge my bets with this because it is very difficult to know what the majority of the French peasantry think about this sort of thing. We know what the French monarchy wants them to think. We're aware of a huge amount of propaganda that's put out by both sides, by both the French and the English. But knowing precisely what a regular French peasant thought is hard. We have some really interesting accounts from someone who's not exactly a peasant, um, probably a, a lower-ranking clergyman in Paris, the so-called, so-called bourgeois of Paris, um, in the 1420s and 1430s. What we've certainly got, though, is a deluge of information which is talking about the French as a chosen people. Mm-hmm. We're also 
becoming more aware of the importance of France as a geographical entity mm -hmm. and a geographical entity under the control of the French monarch. What you have at France in 1337 is a France which is somewhat divided. You've got Gascony, for example, although the King of England is Duke of Gascony, you know, it's clearly different. You've also got some major geographical or rather linguistic differences between northern and southern France. Um, they're speaking the Longdoy in northern France and they're speaking the Languedoc in southern France. They're both speaking French, but the dialects are very, very distinct and different. What you've got by the end of the Hundred Years' War is something of a breakdown of those differences between northern and southern France. There is a slow increase in um, northern influence. And of course, you've got Gascony once again under the direct control of the French monarchy. Now, you've got some other differences. By that stage, places like Burgundy have become much more independent. And it's going to take the French monarchy a long time to bring all those independent areas like Burgundy back under central control. But it's there by the end. Mm -hmm. um, you point out that uh, part of this has been uh, what's well, been going on since um, it's been going since Philip Augustus is the idea of the growth of the French monarchy alongside the growth of the French nation. Yeah, uh, I think that's that's very true. Um, it would be anachronistic to talk about this in terms of divine right, but it's yep. not far from that by the end of the war. Something that the Hundred Years' War encourages is a greater sense of um, an awareness of royal power and of semi-divine royal power in France. Um, and that, that's definitely pushing us towards what we see in the 16th and 17th centuries. Well, I, I think if, if I'm not mistaken, I mean, I think this is uh, something you see at recurring moments like this in French history. Philip Augustus was often seen as a sort of David or Solomon figure. And yeah. and I think that's the same in the mid-15th century, isn't it? I mean, there's... Uh, yeah, that's there's, absolutely right. Um, they yeah. refer to him as a semi-deus. Right. You know, yeah. a, a demigod, essentially. Mm-hmm. And that there is very deliberate propaganda which is coming out of the University of Paris and out of the Abbey of Saint-Denis, which is bolstering this image of um, semi-divine monarchy. Yeah, yeah. And that, that's something around which the nation starts to sort of collect, alongside with things like the development of nations, um, patron saints, um, people like Saint-Michel, who emerges over the course of the Hundred Years' War as the French patron saint. Right. Um, it's interesting on both sides you have dragon slayers. St. Yeah. George develops in England and Sam Sheldon. That's a lovely point. I mean, it's it's hard to get much more uh, semi-deus than uh, the uh, idea that corn, I mean, this is where the it becomes popular to tell the story of Clovis, the anointing oil for the, the first king of France coming from heaven. Um, yeah. It's hard to get much more Davidic. Um, you, you've sort of cut out the prophet when you do that. You don't really need a Samuel or a new Samuel. You've, it's come, the oil, anointing oil has come directly from heaven itself. Yeah, very much so. Um, and at the same time, both kings, and in France in particular, are gaining increasing influence over their own national churches. Yeah. That also allows them to manipulate this sort of ideology. The... Um for the English, it, it seems struck me that it's a bit more um, difficult to describe the sort of national identity. Is, is that was that right? I mean, you are hedging your bets as you describe it, the, uh, the English national identity at the end of the Hundred Years' War. 
Yeah, I think what happens is, to some extent, is the war is, for the most part, now there are some exceptions, things like the various peasant revolts, which show deep dissatisfaction with the war. But I think in many ways, the war becomes a means of binding the nation together. Partly because of all this propaganda, partly because um, increasing numbers of people are involved in the struggle. Um, the professionalization of war gives people a stake in the struggle in a different sort of way than earlier conflict. But of course, when you use the war as a means of binding the nation together, when the war ends badly, we're also looking for people to blame. Mm-hmm. And the loss of French lands is one of the major triggers for a civil war, the Wars of the Roses. And so you then see major division. I suppose it, it's, um, it's like Benedict Anderson's idea of imagined communities. Mm-hmm. By the end of the war, the English have rather different conceptions of what sort of community they want to, uh, they want to form. Um, some of this goes back, of course, to the idea that the English have an inherent right to govern in France. And after 1453, they have to fundamentally rethink that. Right. They, that... It's going to take quite a lot of bloodshed to get them. And the entire medieval idea of, a, of an England, which counterintuitively to us is spans both sides of the channel, um, yeah. is shattered. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I, I suppose you can draw some parallels, although it may be dangerous to do so, with that mm. idea of the British Empire and the Greater Britain Beyond the Seas and all that sort of thing. But I think that there is something about that. France is deeply, deeply important to the Plantagenet monarchs. And in many ways, I think the Hundred Years' War is about an attempt to regain the Angevin Empire. Mm-hmm. In some ways, that's more important than the crown of France. It's getting those ancestral lands back. And when they can't do that, you will then have to have a major rethink about what England's role is. First of all, essentially within the British Isles, and then longer term on a sort of broader global stage. And it's... Um... And, and you also then uh, 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 judge that one of the indications of this is basically what what is it to be English? It's to speak English. Um, well, I think that's really important. Yeah. yeah. Um, if you think about um, the state of language at the start of the Hundred Years' War, the majority of the aristocracy are still more comfortable speaking a variant of French, some sort of now bastardized Anglo-Norman French. By the end of the Hundred Years War, they're speaking English, and frankly, they're finding it very difficult to communicate with French people in French. And so that's one of the sort of major cultural developments that happens over the course of the war. The rediscovery of English as a language of government, of entertainment, um, starts to be used in a variety of legal cases as well. It starts to be spoken in Parliament, all that sort of thing. So the identification of the language with the nation in a much more clear-cut way is certainly a feature of the period. Uh Well, this has been great. Uh, David Green, uh, thanks so much for joining us. I had a great time. I hope you did as well. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you very much. For more historical thinking, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can comment on today's program and find show notes, links, and readings related to today's conversation. Historically Thinking is recorded in the studio of WAUG, the student radio station of Augustana College. Our program's editor is John Ruddat. Beth Leinbach keeps the schedules in sync, 
Matt Lehas keeps WAUG Studio running. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week. Thank you.